During World War II, uh, when the Japanese army stormed the Philippines, the United States was forced to, to make a decision, and General Douglas MacArthur had to leave the islands. And upon leaving the Philippines, General MacArthur, uh, has a, a famous sentence, maybe you know, and it's really a very simple sentence. He said this, I shall return. So I have to go, but I will return. And of course, he did. He walked ashore um, at the victory in the Philippines several years later. So he promised he would come, and when he did it was because there was victory. They, they won, right? Jesus himself promised the same thing. In John 14, 3, Jesus says that, uh, I will come again, right? Because Jesus will return. And the rest of the scriptures are chock full of Jesus coming back. Maybe you don't know this, maybe you do, but the Old and New Testaments are filled with the return of Christ, both by uh, prophecy and by, from like prophets in the Old Testament, and also, hey, Jesus coming really soon. Uh, these are, it's all over the place. I'll give you some numbers here. Over the eight, um, over the Old and New Testaments, there are over 1,800 references in the Old Testament and 17 books in the Old Testament that promise Jesus is coming again or the Messiah is coming, right? Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the return of Christ, which is one out of every 30 verses. So if you read your Bible in the morning, one out of every 30 is probably about Christ coming back. That's significant. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament speak about Jesus coming back. Uh, the ones that don't are the small letters like 2 John, 3 John, and Philemon. But every other letter makes a reference to it or speaks about it. The fourth is all, I think the fourth is, what did I say, just three, right? Yeah, uh, the fourth is Galatians, which when it, it implies he's coming, but it doesn't say that, but it does certainly imply if you read it. So therefore, for every prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are then eight on Jesus' second coming. I got this from a book. So to put it simply, uh, the return of the king is eminent. It's going to happen, right? Um, if you've not seen, uh, this is a, a, a movie plug for you. Uh, if you've not seen The Lord of the Rings, all three of them, I think right now they're on Amazon, Netflix, one of those. Um, if you've not seen them, a uh, Christian author wrote the books, J.R. Tolkien. Uh, just a quick word. Um, lots of great action, good storyline, zero nudity, zero swearing. Not a single, I mean, they're, they're stunning movies. They're like office topping, right? So Lord of the Rings, go watch them. Anyway, the last one's called The Return of the King. Now, that's what's happening for us. One day, Jesus is going to return. Right, he's our king. And until he comes, his work then is not really fully complete. The redemptive plan of God is to send Jesus, save us from our sins, for him to rise from the dead. But he also has to come back to gather us and to give us a new heavens and a new earth. And today, I hope that you'll see that. Normally, we only think of Christ returning when bad things happen. Like, Jesus, please come now. I could really use you coming now. Or when another... Psycho in the news, like Harold Camping, predicts the end of the world happening in 2025 or whatever he always says. I think he's dead now, but he's predicted about five or six times. Then, then we think it's good, but apart from those times, we don't think about the second coming. So today I hope to remind you and to encourage you of this great event. For the Christian, Jesus' coming is like it's, it's the marriage day, right? This is what we've been longing for. This is why, this is why we're here. We're waiting for him to come back. But for the unbeliever and false convert, this is Jesus' judgment. This is the judgment day. This is the beginning of eternal death. 
Now, there's a lot of confusion about end times. Maybe you, you, you even picture that one guy who always reads the book of Revelation, always says, did you read this? Like, just always has a chart and all these tables. And it's a confusing, right? We're very confused. But I want to give you some really simple things about Jesus' second coming. There are primarily three views about the millennium and, how, and all this work. It's, oh, it's, how do you even know what to believe? Well, I want to give you four essential elements of Christ's coming that Paul has here for you. And these should give you great hope and encouragement. These are just four really simple elements that when Jesus comes back, these, are, these have to happen. These will happen. Four elements of that. The first element, number one, is Christ will rescue his people. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So I want to give you two quick things on that. First, notice that the events are ordered, but each in his own order. Whether you know it or not, the beginning and end of all things of our history, it's fixed, it's orchestrated, it's written, it's governed. It will happen the way that God has ordained it. Maybe you could even say that history is his story, because it really is the Lord's story. The world is under divine operation. God rules all of history, both in the micro, both in your fingernails growing, your, your skin, your body, your health, all the way to what countries exist and when they don't exist. Everything is under God's cosmic reign. God is not merely watching history. He has written history. He's the ruler of it. If you look in here Paul says that there's an order, which is just a, it's a term that Paul uses to speak of like a legion of troops. There's an ordering of the troops in a, in a regiment. Well, there's an ordering of the universe in the closing of history. If you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we talk a lot about the church order. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So just like how in creation there's an order and design, in salvation there's order and design. It's not willy-nilly, there's a design. So in the coming of Christ, there is a design. There's a design in the church, design in the world, design in worship, and design in all that God does. Psalm 103, 19 says this, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. So I want to encourage you very simply that no part of the world, or history, or space, or your body, anything, are being disrupted. There's nothing random. I don't know if you guys know this, but so, uh, Proverbs 16 is a huge chapter. It's like 33 verses, I believe. All about God. Just, or, I mean, it's, it's got some things in the middle, but overall, it's God's, God plans this, God plans this, God, I mean, it's everywhere. And Proverbs 16, 33 says, the lot, so think of like dice. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from who? The Lord. So even cat, even like, oh, let's just guess, random. Even that, no, I decide that too. So maybe tonight you should read Proverbs 16 for some encouragement. Overall, you should have no fear that there is order in the world. You should have no fear of these end-of-the-world threats. Hey, it's going to blow up pretty soon. It's ticking the, our climate. We're all going to die in like five years. Don't just ignore that. It's, no, they're, they're wrong. The Bible is very clear. God will order it when he wants to. We're not going to figure it out. There's no global collapse. There's these, God has ordered and orchestrated everything. It's not, it's not going to happen suddenly. It's going to happen when God designs it. People often ask, are we in the last days? Well, we sure are, right? The Bible says ever since Jesus rose from the dead, we are officially in the last days, right? Christ is the first fruits, verse 23 says. So again, I want to remind you, are you aware 
that your life is under God's order? Do you find yourself frustrated with how your life is going right now? Or are you just apathetic? Well, I mean, it is what it is. It just kind of happens. Just kind of sit back and whatever happens, happens. Well, both those are not proper responses. We shouldn't be angry about our life, and we shouldn't also be apathetic. Christ is at the helm of your ship. And the good news is that God does not sail the ship of your life by the compass of your feelings. I don't really feel this way. Well, it's a good thing God doesn't say, oh, well, good, then I won't do that. Uh, I'm just, this last few weeks, I've been reading a book about George Washington in the Battle of Yorktown. And there's a story where Washington and his men are in this boat off the coast, and it's winter, and it's dangerous, and they're, they're in the dangerous Hudson River, and it began to snow. There's large blocks of ice in the water, and the waves are getting bigger, and it's snowing, and they're cold, and they don't know what to do. And Washington's men are like, uh, we're, we're done. We're done for. Washington's, Washington, who's a very experienced sailor, says this. He takes the helm and says, courage, my friends. I am going to conduct you. It is my duty to hold the helm. Then naturally, he directs them safely between two big rocks, and they land safely on shore. Just like that, it is Jesus' duty to govern your ship. He will steer you where he likewise desires to. And so does with history. It is under his order. Secondly, and quickly here, verse 23b, those who belong to him. So look at verse 23 again. Then at his coming, those who belong to him. This is the basic Christian doctrine that when Jesus comes, this is the beginning of the end, right? That there will be an end of history. The coming of Christ and just, I want you to focus on that phrase, the coming of Christ at his coming. He comes for his sheep, his church, his bride. Uh, just like David, when David defended his sheep from a lion and a bear, Jesus will defend you from all that happens. He will rescue you. He will not desert us. He will save us. I don't know if you ever worked retail before or worked at like a, some kind of uh, branch store, but what often happens is just a regular work day, and then you are told, hey, Tomorrow, uh, the branch manager is coming or the CEO is coming. What does everyone automatically do? They scramble, right? Better clean the shelves, better clean the trash cans, better make the shelf look good, better, I mean, everything. Like, make everything look good because we've got to scramble. He's, he's coming. We've got to be on guard, right? We, we have to actually act the way we should have been acting, right? We shouldn't be so sloppy. We, actually, we should actually be taking care of our store and how we act. Well, Jesus used the same parable in Matthew 24, that one day the master of the house is coming, we need to get it in order. And what Jesus is telling us in that parable is between Christ's first coming and, the, and between his second coming, the way that you actually think about Jesus is how you live your life. For the Christian, this should jolt you into faithfulness. He's really coming soon. I should really be circumspect about how I live. I should think about what I say and how I act how I'm spending my time, the things I'm doing and not doing, how I'm thinking about my husband or my wife or what I'm doing with my kids or not doing, or my attitude. All these things should be awakened within us. Like going to the eye doctor. Donald Ray said he can't stand the eye doctor. I cannot stand going to the eye doctor and getting that little puff of air in your eyeballs. You want to know why? Freaks me out every time, right? Just like, it's, like, it's like a trigger. I'm just ready, right? Well, this should be the same way. Knowing Christ is coming should just awaken you. Okay, he's coming. I'm, I got it. I see now. I understand. So do you desire Christ coming just in cloudy days or do you desire in your sunny days as well? And lastly, for an unbeliever, 
Jesus warns that in Matthew 24 that his delay will be an excuse to live however you want. Right? That, that, that's the opposite. So who, how will we act now between Christ's coming is who we really are. So therefore, friends, this life really does matter. It really, your life now really does matter because Christ is coming. It really does count. I want you to notice probably the most, an important phrase before we move on here. Those who belong to him. This is a treasury of riches for you. Um, in high school, you guys probably are familiar with this, uh, you always wanted to have people think of you in a certain way, right? Well, if I wear the dorky clothes, I'll look like a dork, right? If I'm on the basketball team, I'm the cool jock guy on the basketball team. Sure, I ride the bench, but I'm on the team, right? Or your grades. Are you the, the, the nerdy kid who gets all the grades, or are you the, the cool guy who just goes, Pfft. Grades are grade schmades. I get D's, right? Like, whatever. Like, it's your identity, right? It's who you belong to. And as adults, we think the same way. We crave identity. We want to be liked. We want to be financially comfortable. We want to be popular. We get wrapped up in what people think about us. We want people to think great things about us. Either in what we have or what we want. Maybe in, in, in the things you have, here's how you know what you love most. If you were to lose that in your life, would it ruin you? If it's family, maybe a job, maybe a, a house or a car or possessions. Man, if I don't have that, I'm, I'm like nobody. I got nothing interesting in me. Or maybe it's what you want. What runs your imagination? What is frustrating you right now that you don't have? Man, if I had that, I would finally have everything. That's what defines us. That's what we get our identity from. But Paul is saying very clearly here that you don't belong to anything but Christ. That you have the most important opinion that ever exists that says, I own you. You are mine, right? We, we always hope someone famous says, hey, I know that guy. Patrick Mahomes knows who I am, right? You, just, you hope so. But Jesus looks at you and says, I, I, you belong to me. I know who you are. That should just... Wipe out every identity crisis that we have. Because all, when all those things fall, like your job, your, ha- your family, your health, your status, you belong to Christ. Quickly now. Number two, Christ will destroy his enemies. Look at verses 24 and 25. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. I want to show you three things very quickly here. First thing, Jesus ends history. Look at verse 24. Then comes the what? The end, right? It's like a, every book, every movie, every story, there's always a, the end, right? It's over, the end. So the world is God's drama. He's the director, and he's actually the center of the story too. History and all that's wrapped up in it will one day, friends, be a footnote in eternity. There won't be any flags of our country in eternity because there'll just be a footnote. All of the universe exists for Jesus. If you look, uh, it says, then comes the end. Uh, The original word means uh, it's telos, like telephone or telescope, right? If you think of a pirate's telescope when they open up like that, right? It's the end of the telescope. Well, telos means the end. It's what you exist for. You have a telos in life. You have an end. And when Jesus comes, there will be no second chances. There, this will be the end. There will be no do-overs, no apologies, no mercy. When Kelly and I were 
on a plane to go to my brother's wedding a few years ago. We, our first flight was delayed, and we had to make our second flight. And if your first one was delayed, you are not in good shape for your second one. We had two children carrying a car seat, luggage. I mean, we were like sprinting. And it was, of course, on the other side. And we missed our flight, and the gate is closed. I could barter all day. Please let me in. Our, like, our, our flight was delayed. wasn't our fault, which it wasn't. Right? I, I don't fly the planes. wasn't our fault. We're way over there. Do you know what she said? Sorry. I'm sorry. Right? It's the end. So when Christ comes, it's, it's the end. It's, it, the door is shut. It's too late. There's no do-overs in your life. It doesn't matter. It's done. Likewise, for unbelievers, we must realize that the end will reveal who you are. It, it will be too late. If you're not a believer, the end is too late. There are no do-overs. You can't say, God, you're right. I blew it. It's, it's done. That's the reality of it. So the question I must ask you this morning is, what end are you living for? What, what telos? Uh, if you go to the cemetery, and you, you, I think I've said this before, but you see a, a birth date, and a death date. And what's in the middle of those two dates? Your life is summed up in a dash. That should be humbling, but also, man, it really is just gone. What are you doing with your dash? What will be said at your funeral? Friends, let's be familiar with the, with the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 12 about the rich man who got bigger barns and bigger houses and better this and eat, drink, and be merry. And when he dies, do you know what the Lord says to him? Fool. God calls him a fool because he wasted his life in Luke 12, 15. Friends, I don't want to be a fool. So Jesus says, therefore, be rich towards God, not towards stuff, but towards the Lord. So I hope you're seeing the telos of your life is to be rich towards God. Second thing, Jesus conquers. So the end comes and this is what happens. He conquers. Look at verse 24. He delivers the kingdom over to God the Father. Just kind of like handing over a plate, right? Here's the kingdom. Here you go. I mean, it's just, he has the whole world in his hands. Literally, just here you go. Here's the kingdom, right? So the resurrection of Jesus gave the apostles a sermon to preach, but the return of Christ gave them adrenaline, right? Knowing this is why the apostles were in the book of Acts were just almost invincible. I mean, prison? Throw us in. Beheading? Sure. Because they know he's coming. It just, they, they were just lit on fire almost to, to serve the Lord. Friends, Jesus is omnipotent. He is infinite in power. He just simply hands over the whole universe to God. I mean, like nothing. There you go. Just hands it over. He will destroy, if you, I think uh, the reading this morning said, abolish or annihilate. I want you to hear that again, that he will destroy every rule every authority and power. So what does that mean? It's pretty clear. When Jesus comes, every enemy, every wicked nation, every cruel ruler, every foe, every demon, Satan himself, every unbeliever, Jesus will just wipe out. We're talking about decimating. I mean, Noah's ark has nothing on this. That, that's, that, that, that's a puddle compared to what Jesus is going to do. Psalm chapter 2 reads of Jesus being this king. He just looks down and says, that's all, all, all my inheritance down there. And the father says, go get it. So friends, when, when the king comes, what side of the wall will you be on? 
Will you be in the fortress with Christ or will you be outside of the wall as an enemy? I want to say very simply here that the Bible says that there is no, and this is a famous phrase I've been stealing lately from people, but there is no neutrality. There's no middle ground with the gospel. There's, well, there's Christians, there's non-Christians, and there's people who are, well, they vote pretty good, so they're all right. Or, you know, uh, they believe in a God and they pay their taxes. They're either an unbeliever or they're, an, or they're a Christian. There's no neutral ground. No institution is neutral, right? Well, they don't affirm this. That doesn't matter. If they're not Christian, they're not, they're not for Christ, right? John MacArthur said it this way. The question is not, what will you do with Jesus? The question is, when, he, when, when you see him, what will he do with you? So, friends, I must ask you, what will Christ do with you on that day? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The third thing in this is, Jesus reigns. Look at verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, this is repeated over and over and over. And you've probably heard me, you've heard me preach now for about a year and a half. You've probably heard some of the same things. Why? Well, I'm a husband. That's just what I do. But secondly, repetition is because things are important, right? We replay, we revisit, we repeat the same things. Do you think that God has a favorite Bible verse? I would wager that he does. This verse that Paul is citing is Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1 is cited or alluded to in the entire New Testament, depending on how you count them, about 20 to 27 times. In fact, Psalm 110, verse 4 is is given to the book of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 6, verse 20, and pretty much all of chapter 7. So Psalm 110 is God's favorite psalm, right? And here, Paul clearly references this, which says that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And here, Paul is clearly saying that Jesus will reign over all his enemies. Hebrews chapter 2 says this, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, Christ, God left nothing outside of his control. But catch this, friends. I want you to hear this part in Hebrews. At present... We do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. So let me ask you a question. This is an honest question as as a believer. When you look out in the world, you turn on the TV, you see everything that's happening. Do you see everything as obedient to Christ? It's okay to say no. The answer is no, right? Does it look like it? Is it really in your control? Do you see what's happening? How we think about these things. So though we don't see it, it truly is. Maybe you thought about this question that I want to put before you. How should you think about why God continues to let evil people live? Just be upfront. Why is this evil dictator in Russia, why is he still alive? Why did Bin Laden live for so long? Why did he do that? Why did he just wipe them out? Have we thought about that? Do you think about it now maybe? Why does, God, why does God permit them to breathe? Look what they're doing. I want to give you maybe a couple ways to think about that. That should be helpful for you. That this, because Jesus, this text is saying Jesus will reign over them. He is reigning right now. But what is he, how is he reigning? Because he is reigning, but how is he doing it? Here's two ways to think about it. Number one, and these, these should be very simple. I think you'll understand what I'm, what I'm saying here. Why do they exist? Number one, first, so that one day Jesus can make them a trophy of his grace. You want to know how powerful I am? I say that guy. 
saved him? Yep. Whoa. That's a big Christ, right? 1 Timothy 1.16 says that so his great patience would be shown. Wow, you say that one? He's your trophy, that one? So all of heaven and all the angels and the earth would say, whoa, right? Romans 9 verse 22 says that very clearly. Second reason, or the opposite, to make them a vessel of his wrath. Yeah, I'm going to destroy him. You think he's great? I'm going to blow him out of the water. And you're going to say, look at that God. That's a big God. That's Psalm, or I'm sorry, Romans 9 again. Paul asked, why does God raise up Pharaoh? The Lord says very clearly in Exodus, to show my glory, right? Why, why did you raise the evil man Pharaoh? To show off how strong I am, right? So, again, Proverbs 16 is a good text to go to on this uh, area. So the question is, when we look at these evil people, you should, be, you should be thinking, will they be a Pharaoh or will they be a Paul? I don't know. We don't know the answer. But what we do know is that Christ is actively reigning over every evil power. They're not just free roaming Jesus. Oh, I'll figure it out. He's, even in the rebellion, he's reigning over them, right? Uh, Martin Luther even said that the devil is God's devil. Yep, he's mine too, right? Colossians 1.16 says that Jesus created everything for himself, including the devil. So note well, friends, I want you to hear this, that Jesus has many enemies, but he has no competition. There's no equal fights. And what should astonish us is that God permitted me to live in my rebellion and in my unconverted state for years and still gave me breath. That, that should astonish you this morning that, I would, that you were saved at whatever age, that God didn't just wipe me out when he could have, but he saved me. That should give us more awe. Thirdly, Christ will destroy death. Look at verse 26. Brother, this is probably my favorite verse in this whole passage. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The final enemy of death shall be put to death, right? Death is going to get the death sentence. It almost sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Is that really going to happen? Is there really going to be a funeral for death one day? Like it's going to actually just be done? It's going to close shop? It's going to just move out of the town? Yeah. There'll be a happily ever after, after all. Jesus will destroy the great destroyer, the Goliath of our souls, namely death. When Christ comes, death will be like a bad dream. It's just, it's gone, right? It's woke up, it's gone. Death is gone. So the judgment upon God, though, is death. That's why death exists. Death exists because God sentenced the world with death. If you think of uh, a judge with a gavel, Genesis 3 shows when Adam and Eve sinned, God slams the gavel. Death, right? That's the death sentence, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 20 tells us that God did this in hope. So friends, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God has control over death? It should give us great hope that he does, right? He's not just watching it and it's happening. He actually is in charge of it, right? John Piper said this about death. The horror of death is God's appointed response to the horror of sin. So when you... When you see how scary death is, the things that death does, it's terrifying. It does vicious things. That's like meant to be a parable. That's how God sees sin. It's that serious. It's 
that atrocious. Romans 8.20, though, says that God subjected the world in hope. I do not know many judges that ever judge a criminal in hope. Gavel slam, death penalty in hope. Oh, that makes sense. But the Lord does that. He judges the world in hope. Well, what hope is it? Well, consider this. It would be unjust if God did not judge the world with death when Adam sinned. Why would that be unjust? Because God would say, this is not a big deal. I mean, yeah, you messed up. It's all right. No, God shows that it's this serious because I am this high. I am this good. I am this holy. I am this praiseworthy, right? But God judges in hope. He really does. His heart towards us in Christ, though he judged, is gracious. In his first coming, Jesus wields death. He grabs onto death, uses it. He uses your enemy, death, to magnify his grace and power over death and his death and resurrection. It's like a nasty dragon, right? He just tamed it. You scared of that little thing? I got it. He just tamed it for you. Death now serves us Christians. Though it still makes us sorrowful, right? We know that in Christ, that to die is what? Gain. But death is still sorrowful. To depart and be with Christ, Paul says, is far better. Can I ask you a, a personal question? I'm going to. Are you scared of death? Honest question. As Christians, we know, Hebrews 2 says, that the fear of death is gone. But if you're like me, I do fear death at times. I don't fear what's happening after. I know when I die, I'm seeing Christ. I know that. But do you fear death? I don't want to go through the water. I don't want to go through that Jordan of death. I don't want to cross that. It's hard. It's scary. This morning, we're going to have story time with Uncle Kale. <laughs> I want to read you a portion from Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, I hope you'll hear it. It's about a page, but I want you to hear it. And it's about death, but the fear of death, that some saints fear it and some don't. And that John Bunyan gives a category. And I just, few books make me cry like Pilgrim's Pride. I hope you'll read it. Here's what John Bunyan says. Christian and hopeful are two companions that have reached the end of their life. They're about to cross the river of Jordan, which is death. And John Bunyan writes this. Now between them and the gate was a river, but there was no bridge to go over. And the river was very deep. At the side of this river, the pilgrims were stunned. The pilgrims then began to inquire if there, was an, if there were no other way to the gate, but there was not. Then the pilgrims, especially Christian, began to despair in their minds. They looked this way and that, but no, one could be fa- no way could be found to escape the river. They then asked the men, these angels, if the waters were deep everywhere all the time. They told them that sometimes the water was shallow, but that they could, guide them in, they could not guide them in the matter, since the waters were deep or shallow, depending upon their faith. Then they waded into the water, and upon entering, this is death, Christian began to sink. He cried out to his good friend Hopeful, saying, I am sinking in the deep waters. The bills are going over my head. All his waves go over me. Then Hopeful said, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom. It is good. It was then that Christian lost his senses, and his memory failed him. And he could not talk in an orderly fashion of any of those sweet refreshments that he had met on the way. All the words that he spoke were filled with horror. 
and he feared that he should die in the river and never obtain entrance at the gate. He was greatly troubled by his thoughts of past sins, committed before and during. It was everything that Hopeful could do to keep his brother's head above water. Sometimes Christian, despite all of Hopeful's help, would slip into the waters. Hopeful tried to comfort him, saying, Brother, I see the gate. The men are standing to receive us. But Christian would answer, It is you they wait for. You've been hopeful ever since I knew you. So have you, said Christian. Here are these last words. With that, Christian began to shout with a loud voice. Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. Be of good cheer, Hopeful reminded him, because seeing Christ would make you whole. Friends, you're going to go through death. But you're not going to go alone. Seeing Christ will make you whole. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. The best moment of a Christian's life is his last one because it is the one that is nearest heaven. Depend upon it. Your dying hour will be the best hour you have ever known. Your last moment will be your richest moment. Better than the day of your birth will be the day of your death. It's a Christian hope, isn't it? Lastly, verse 27, 28. This is is quick because this is a pretty simple section. Christ will fulfill his work when he comes. So Jesus, as the Messiah, look at verse 27, for God has put all things, again, what Paul is saying here is this, that God is, not be, God is not going to subject himself to Jesus. That would make any sense. For God has put all things under his feet. Now, I want to ask you a question. When God made the, the garden and put Adam in it, what was Adam supposed to do? Supposed to work, right? Subdue creation, make it obey him, right? Have it all be under his feet, Genesis 1.28, and as God's image bears, we failed to do that, right? We didn't represent God. We, Adam took the serpent's word, Adam and Eve, and they fell. But Jesus has come as the God-man to be the better Adam, right? He comes to subdue everything Adam could never subdue, right? Jesus came to destroy the enemy that Adam was tempted and lost by. Jesus will fulfill his work as the God-man who put all things under his feet, and Paul here quotes from Psalm 8, which is about man, but also it says the son of man, which we know is man, but also the Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, Christ has redeemed you from the world. He's going to redeem all things. And it does so through his work as the Messiah. He's the king and he fulfills our job as man. The best man is Christ Jesus. He shows us how to live. So he's going to fulfill our work for us as the Messiah. Therefore, friends, how do we fulfill our work as true men and women under Christ? How do we subdue all things under us? Well, first, we need to make sure we have our lives under control. Is there sin in your life that runs rampant, that overthrows your kingdom rule in your life? It's your job to deal with destructive habits, isn't it? Whether it's you see everyone else as the problem, you're obsessed with what others think, you have a harsh mouth, you're reckless, you harbor resentment, you have a pet sin, whatever it is, Jesus says, if I've conquered and you conquer with me, kill it. Conquer your sin, right? Secondly, we proclaim victory to the world, not by a weapon, but by the word of Christ, right? We don't, we don't act like the crusades and get a sword and slaughter people. We preach the gospel. That's how we conquer the enemies, through the gospel, right? I'm asking a lot of questions. Here's a question for you. 
Whose primary job is it to make disciples of the next generation? Is it the church's primary job? I think they're a part of it. It's you. It's our job. It's mom and dad. It's grandpa and grandma. It's friend and neighbor. It's my brother Christian next to me. It's, my, it's our job, right? So parents should instruct and disciple their children to obey Christ. Children should honor their parents and instruct their siblings and their friends at school. If you don't have children or grandchildren, disciple a young person of the same gender, which there are only two genders, just thrown out there. Christ has redeemed you from the world to infect the world with the gospel. So how do we fulfill the Great Commission? By discipling people. Not by making converts, but making disciples, right? We don't want just one decision. We don't want that. that that's, that's great, but we want more than that. We want a disciple, someone who loves Christ and walks with him. That's our job individually and corporately as a church. Secondly and lastly, Paul says here that he will give the kingdom over to God the Father. And he destroys everything. And it says in verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him. So Jesus will finish his work as Messiah. One day the work will be complete. The messianic role will be fulfilled and the work will be done. Philippians 1.6 says this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is this day. Your salvation is not done until Christ comes back so that God may be all in all. This is the heavenly of heaven, right? That God is all in all. Jesus comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found. I won't sing it for you because it's not Christmas yet, but as far as the curse is found, right? So if someone asked you, what is eternal life? How would you answer? Well, John 17, 3 says this, this is eternal life, that we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So it's eternal life and is knowing Christ face to face. It's knowing Christ now and knowing him later. In 1636, Harvard University was founded. Do you know who founded the university? The Puritans, our Christian brothers. Did you know that? And their motto was this, Christo ec ecclesia. Great, Cale. Thanks for that helpful Latin. You're welcome. Here's what it means. For Christ and the church. Harvard's university motto literally used to be for Christ and for the church. One of their guiding principles in school was this. Everyone who comes to this school, everyone shall consider the main end of life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Isn't that stunning? That's why we exist, friends, to know Christ and to know eternal life. May there never be a Sunday where we sing, write, talk, walk, think, or do anything that is not about Christ here together and both in our lives. All glory be to Christ. Let's sing.